All right, welcome back, everybody, to Story Symbol Spirit Podcast on how to make sense of scripture. My name is John McCambridge. I am here in the 514 production studio <laughs> with Jackie Mitchell. We are flying solo today. No producer, Jerry. So pray for us. Pray for us. Pray nothing goes technically wrong, which, yeah. it, which it probably will. Uh, but, you know, maybe it won't because we're in the, we're like in the 30 club now. Episode 31, baby. Okay. Well, well, I mean, what, what else do you want? Jackie, how are you today? I, I actually talked to you this morning and, and you seem disturbed about a, 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 a photo that you received. Oh my gosh. Yes. It scared me. My husband sent me, I, I, I think he did it on TikTok, uh, like a filter um, that generated what he supposedly would look like as an old person. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know if it was the angle or what, but it scared me. It shook me. <laughs> it rattled me to my core. It was scary. She was distraught when I came in this morning. I was showing everyone. Stressed. I was like, oh my gosh. And I mean, on- he's, I love him. He looks great, but it, that just was a scary photo. Yeah. I mean, he just kind of looks like a normal old man to me in the photo. So like, it's kind that, of Don't like, say that. That's, I mean, he just looks old. No, no there was something <laughs> oh off about gosh. it. <laughs> All right, well, are you it gonna Are you going to do it and send one back? No, I don't want to <laughs> see. I want to know. <laughs> I remember when everybody was doing that. And then like, um, or do you remember the one, I think it was uh, Snapchat, but it would tell you, it would like tell you how old that it thought that you were. Oh, based no. On the I didn't know that. So, so my wife has a friend and as a joke, this friend like took this picture of her and her husband and it said that he was like 31 which was like pretty right at the time and it said that she was like 56 and so so hurtful she was offended and so she sent it to jenna and uh, of course you should never do that you should never send that type of stuff to your friends because like every once in a while jenna will just randomly send her that picture oh the the pictures (laughs) that my friends have of me If we ever had a falling out, they'd have so much just ammo to just... <laughs> All right. Well, uh, today we're going to go through Genesis 18. Mm-hmm. Very important, very deep scene. Um, speaking of old people, too. <laughs> speaking of old... Yeah. Abraham and Sarah are pretty yeah, old. You probably think Abraham didn't look good either, Jackie. <laughs> um, just the patriarch of our faith. No, no, no big deal. Uh, many, like many of the things that we've read so far and like many of the things that we'll read as going forward, it's strange. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see Abraham visited by three strange figures. He's going to talk to God and then he's going to seemingly enter into intense negotiations with the almighty God. Yeah. And so we're going to unpack all that today. Yeah. Uh, but, but first, if you like this podcast, please subscribe, write a review, give us a rating. It's always helpful. Get the word out, share it with friends, post it on your socials, send an episode to someone who may find it helpful or interesting. It wants to be a resource for people. And, uh, um, hopefully, hopefully it's helpful for everybody, right? Mm, All right. Yeah. So where do, we, where do we leave off last episode, Jackie? So we just went through God's kind of re, um, like re-explanation and um, kind of expansion of the covenant um, that he makes with Abraham. Mm-hmm. Now he's Abraham and now Sarai is Sarah. Right. Um, and then they make the covenant of circumcision. Right. So we talked about symbolically what that meant. Um, and we talked about um, the heir that God promises, and it's not Ishmael, but he says you're going to have a son through Sarah and his name's Isaac. Yes, exactly. So I'm not going to go through all the significance of circumcision again, Mm -hmm. but because it's such a big part of the people of God and the sign of the covenant, I mean, it is really the ritual of consecration to into the covenant of God. Mm -hmm. And so it is important to understand where that comes from and, and to understand it's not just a random 
you know, thing that these silly ancient people were doing. Yeah. Significant depth and meaning and symbolism to it. Uh, but you can listen to that uh, on, on last week's episode. Uh, and and uh, in terms of the narrative, you know, w- w- basically God has continued to clarify what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. So Abram's mm-hmm. 99 years old and he has a 13-year-old son who's about to start having children. And last week, God's like, oh, by the way, that's not the promise. Yeah. <laughs> he's not the one that all yeah. these things are going to go through. Uh, he's he's blessed and nations are going to come from him, but you know something further is being promised. And so God told Abraham, he's going to have a son with Sarah and his name will be Isaac, which means Yitzhak, which is laughter mm-hmm. because Abraham laughs when God tells him this and because it's funny. Yeah. He's 99 years old and he has a son. Yeah. And yet God's like, oh, but that, that's not the redemption. Yeah. Or you're going to do that again with your wife who you've never been able to have children with, mm-hmm. right? And that will be the promised son. And all the blessings and all the blessings of the world are going to be going through him, mm-hmm. not Ishmael. And so we pick up there at Genesis 18. Let's do uh, one through five. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you to something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So this is, this is wild stuff. Yeah, already. Uh, but but it's, it's very cool and it's very important. So this is, this is what I will, will refer to as a theophany. Mm. which means an appearance of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also what I'll call a Christophany, mm-hmm. which is an appearance of Christ. Yeah. Right. So the, it can be some cool stuff. The eternal son yeah. is in this. Uh, and and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what that means here as we go forward. But Abraham is set up amongst the oaks of Mamre, mm-hmm. right? And we've talked about these oaks a lot, but it is a really good example of the symbolic aspect mm-hmm. that the, the shade of the covenant if you are in the land of Canaan and you are uncovered, you will burn. Yeah, I'm <laughs> it's sure. It's really hot yeah. in the desert. Well, it says he's sitting in the heat of the day. Yeah, <laughs> it's hot out. And so uh, he's underneath the shade of the trees. And, mm-hmm. and you know, in the, the Bible at times talks about how trees are like God. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons they're like God is because you can sit underneath their protection mm-hmm. and find mm-hmm. relief and rest. And so he's under the oaks of Mamre. And uh, it says that the Lord appeared to Abraham. Yeah. That's the first thing that it says in this chapter. Now, that word, the Lord, is indeed the Hebrew word Yahweh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so God, mm-hmm. the, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, uh, the almighty God appears to Abraham while Abraham is, is in his tent. Yeah. Right? So in terms of the language, it's not, ambiguous yeah it's not not like some guy and maybe it was god we don't know right says yahweh showed up right yeah and like you know there's a word elohim that also means god but it can mean other gods yeah like other divine figures yeah divine figures this is yahweh this is the personal name of god yeah and so yahweh appears to abraham and what does it look like when yahweh appears when there's a theophany when Mm -hmm. god is there visually in front of you well here it looks like three men. Yeah. 
So that's strange. Mm-hmm. At least it seems strange to us because what, like, what would you imagine an appearance of God looking like? Not human, I would say. <laughs> like a storm or something? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Something overwhelming. Something crazy. Sublime. Much taller and bigger than Abraham, <laughs> yeah. for one. Yeah. Um, but it says here that, that Yahweh appears to Abraham, and then it goes on to describe three men. Mm-hmm. Abraham, right? And Abraham treats them in a very reverential way. Yeah, he bows low right away. He bows low, and uh, you know, kind of in a way that you would expect if God appeared to you, right? Like uh, yeah. when, when God appears to Isaiah, in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter six, the call of Isaiah, he falls on his face. Mm-hmm. And so every time God has appeared to Abraham, he's fallen on his face. Yeah. And so here he falls on his face. Mm-hmm. He, he bows low when these three men approach him. And he says, if I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. And he offers water and he offers rest and he offers food. Mm-hmm. So this is typically what is, you know, they, they live in, I think what we would today probably define as a hospitality culture. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different from what we exist in today in America. Yeah, for right? sure. For us, we assume that material and resources are available, that programs and organization of those programs is generally available and distributed. But all of that is something that's been built societally over time through the proliferation of wealth and government organization and all of that. And that's not how it is at the time. Yeah. So in a hospitality culture in the, in the deserts of the, the Middle East, if someone is traveling at this time, they come upon you. If they're not an enemy or a threat, then what is the social contract? Yeah. What, what are you supposed to do for them? What's expected of you? Yeah, you have to be hospitable. Yeah, and why do you have to be hospitable? We have no idea what they have. <laughs> I mean, they're wandering in the desert. So, so to be hospitable is to give people like life, sus- you know, Absolutely. sustain them. You know, people die in the desert. Yeah. And so if someone comes across you, and they're not an enemy and they're not a threat. You offer them food and water mm-hmm. and, and hospitality because what if you're wandering through the desert? Yeah. Right? So that's what a social contract means. It's like, what do we expect of each other? Yeah. Right? So we sort of like, in our culture, we have all kinds of social contracts. But for example, like you expect to not walk down the street and be assaulted by somebody. Mm-hmm. If that social contract broke down, I mean, yeah. it, it would, we would live in a totally different world than what we live in today. Right. So this is part of the social contract at the time, this, this idea of hospitality that still exists with, with certain you know, people groups mm-hmm. that, that uh, are very different than our Western society. So there's like the Bedouin people uh, in the deserts of the Middle East, and, and you'll, still, you'll still find this kind of thing, mm. uh, this kind of like over-the-top hospitality. Um, and again, part of it is because you, know, you want to make sure that if you're a wanderer yourself, you get treated well. Yeah. Uh, God's going to tell his people, by the way, that you're supposed to treat the the foreigners well yeah. and the wanderers well. Yeah. Why? Because you were a foreigner and you were a wanderer. Remember when you were wandering around in the wilderness? Yeah. Yeah. So when you find people like that, when you, you have a nice. home, you better be nice. Yeah. Right. Um, and so it's part, it's some, some, somewhat encoded into us, mm-hmm. this, this kind of idea of social contract. So Abraham offers what he should offer food and water and, and rest. But he also says, my Lord. Yeah. Right, which is Adonai, Adoni, my Lord, which is odd. Mm. You know, that's not exactly what you would say to some randos. You don't know. Even if you were going to be hospitable to them. Yeah, right? sure. And so they accept this offer. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to get into this a little bit more. So let's do six through eight. 
So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and the milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. So I'm not a great baker. Okay. Um, but you bake a lot. I do. And you're a good baker, although you are gluten-free, which, you know, kind of... Yeah, I do bake gluten-free. ...hinders the Sorry. quality of the product. Oh, people complain so I bring in free treats here <laughs> to the office. Oh, is this gluten-free? <laughs> but you do bake, right? Tough so, crowd, yeah. So you probably know the yeah. answer to this question. What? How much is a SIA? <laughs> I don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so so the, the Bible does translate some of these measurements. It, you know, it doesn't translate them into, like, modern measurements. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons is because it's somewhat ambiguous. Like, you kind of have to guess. Uh, but, but, you know, through time, they've been able to somewhat reconstruct it. And what you see here is that Abraham is not just preparing a meal for some wanderers. He's preparing some kind of giant feast. So three seas of flour is something like 96 cups of flour or 5.7 gallons of flour or 16 kilos or, you know, 36 pounds of, right? Like it's, it's a it's lot of bread. A lot of bread. I think that calorically is probably enough bread for like 40 or 50 people. Wow. And that'd be a lot of bread for 40 and 50 people and an entire calf mm -hmm. and curds and milk. Yeah, an entire calf feeds more than three people. There's three men in Abraham. Yeah. So something intense and grand is happening here. This is a, a great feast or a banquet. Mm. And, you know, you can kind of, I guess you could come up with reasons why, but I think it's because Abraham has already identified this encounter as an encounter with God. Mm. Says the Lord appeared to Abraham. Yahweh appeared to Abraham. So how does he show hospitality to God? Yeah, with his best. Not with a, with a, not with a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, yeah. right? With his best and with uh, an incredible amount of it. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Um, we talked in, in an earlier episode when Abram tithes to, to Melchizedek that this is exactly how we're supposed to respond to God. Mm -hmm. You know, God has given us everything. God has given us life. He's given us creation, everything that exists. And so our response is generosity and thanksgiving, mm -hmm. right? Um, the, the tithe, 10% is actually a very, very low threshold mm. for how generous you should be to the creator and sustainer of the universe. Yeah, that's true. Right? And so this is honestly one of the reasons why a good church should never be shy about teaching generosity and tithing. Right? Of course, you should give back to God. Of course, you should meet God with extravagant and grand generosity. It's actually absurd not to do that. Sure. Mm. You think about it yeah. in, in this context. And so let's talk for a second before we go on in the narrative about the fact that Abraham identifies this encounter with three men as an encounter with God. Yeah. And so I'm going to call this definitely a theophany. I'm going to call this a Christophany, mm. right? Um, so an appearance of God, and I'm going to say it's an appearance of, of the eternal Christ. Mm. And so before we go any further, we have to, to break down what's happening here, why it makes sense, and, and what the biblical theology is as, as we go forward in the story. Um, so there's three men, and this encounter with the three men is something Abraham immediately recognizes as an encounter with God himself. Mm. Here, in a moment, instead of saying that, you know, three men said X, Y, or Z, or one of them said, it's going to move into this strange uh, grammatical structure where it just starts to say that Yahweh said. Mm. So he's speaking with these three men but it's just saying that the Lord said. Mm -hmm. So there's three men. And at some point it says the Lord or Yahweh is speaking to Abraham in this interaction. And then at the end of the chapter, 
And at the beginning of the next chapter, it's going to say that two of the men who are identified as angels are going to go to Sodom. Okay. So two of them are angels. Two of them are angels. Okay. Uh, but Yahweh stays mm. with Abraham. So there's a history of interpretation here. But I, uh, what I subscribe to, and I think this is what's called Occam's razor, which mm-hmm. is that the simplest explanation is, is usually the right one, would say that there's three men, one of them is Yahweh, and two of them are angels. Yeah. And they look like humans, mm-hmm. which is strange to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people unfamiliar with this kind of thing, it might actually feel like you're, you're, you're like approaching heresy. Yeah, it feels weird to, to talk about. Right. Yeah. So, sure. bef- so before we get into details, let's lay out what, what I'm proposing. And then, and then I'm just trying to be overly clear about this interaction. Mm-hmm. God and two angels come to eat with Abraham and they're embodied as humans, as in they have human bodies. So much so that they eat food and drink water and walk on two legs yes. and speak. Yeah. And so this seems strange to us. But one thing I want to make clear is that it's not strange in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it's not strange in the Old Testament. So if you remember what we've talked about in terms of ancient worship and idol worship and the sun and the moon and the stars and how they're identified as gods, it was taken for granted at the time that gods, divine beings could inhabit different forms. Mm-hmm. And the manifestation of a God in a different form in the Greek is called a hypostasis. Mm-hmm. So you make a, an, an idol out of wood and then there's a ceremony. Yeah. And then God comes into the idol. Yeah, we talked about this a lot with idolization already. Right. And that's why you place it in the temple. Yeah. And that's why they worship the, the idol. Mm. They don't think that the idol's God. They think that the God that they're worshiping is inhabiting that mm-hmm. idol. Mm-hmm. That, that there's a hypostasis of God in the idol. Now, the Hebrew people, the, the Yahweh worshipers are going to be told not to do that. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to make idols out of, out of their hands and out of wood because... Uh, partly because we are the images, yeah, right? So we're the Selim Elohims. We are the, the, the idols of God. And so, you know, the creator and sustainer of the universe is not going to inhabit something made out of human hands. That's what the prophets are going to make fun of the other uh, gods because they're going to say, oh, okay, you have to worship your God. Make sure you go and carve your little, your little wood thing so that you can worship your God. Yeah. I mean, you can only worship your God if you, can create this thing out of your own hands. Yeah. Like it, it, there's yeah. something about it that's illogical, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, but they're not saying that it's not true. Mm-hmm. They're not saying that a God cannot or a divine being cannot inhabit one of those, those, those carved things. But um, so, so anyways, all of the reasons that God gives the Hebrew people not to do that, it's all, that's all good and correct, but it doesn't mean that the Hebrew people didn't think God could localize or become manifest in a hypostasis. Mm. In fact, when we get to Christ, this is exactly what Christian theology says happened. Right. That God became flesh and blood. And so the fact that God manifests as Jesus Christ, who's fully divine and fully human in theology, is called, you know? A hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. So Mm -hmm. hypostasis, right? Hypostatic union. Because both the hypostasis of a human being and the hypostasis of God come together Mm -hmm. fully in one. So this is something that the ancient world believed. And it's something that you're going to see throughout the Bible. Um, In Exodus, the angel of the Lord is going to start to appear. And then the angel of the Lord will appear throughout uh, the Old Testament at multiple times at different stages. And almost every time it says the angel of the Lord appeared 
And then at some point in the interaction, the angel of the Lord is simply called Yahweh. Hmm. And the angel of the Lord tends to look like a human. Hmm. So God is somehow appearing and manifesting in human form at times throughout the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's something very confusing in, in Exodus 33, where in the very same chapter, it says that uh, no one can see Yahweh and live. Yeah. And then Moses is described as being one who saw and spoke to Yahweh face to face. How can that be? Right. Well, this is how it can be. Mm. Because uh, the, the, the divine essence of God appears to his people or to a chosen representative or, or person within that people in bodily form mm. at certain specific times. So what John is going to unpack in his prologue when we, get, when we get there, the gospel, is that it is this Yahweh who appeared in human form in former times who is indeed the same God who becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so for that and a variety of other, you know, in, in interpretive uh, d- decisions, this Yahweh that Abraham speaks to mm. is, is Christ. Yeah. Um, I think there's, it's a little bit problematic to say pre-incarnate because of the way that time and space works for God. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but this is not the incarnation. Sure. Yeah. So it's not Jesus of Nazareth that appears at this moment, right? This is this is a form mm-hmm. that looks like a human and, and acts like a human that's actually Yahweh. Mm. Much of uh, the early church, church father theology is gonna be about how that's not what Jesus was. Mm-hmm. He was actually fully human and fully divine. Both of those natures coexisting at once simultaneously with the same will. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm not saying that that the incarnation happened here, Mm. right? I'm specifically saying that's not true. What I'm saying is that that is Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. who appears. Appearing. The eternal son appears to Abraham as a human. And that's the same thing that's going to happen when we, when we run into the angel of the Lord and they start calling the angel of the Lord Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so this is, this is my, and I'm certainly not alone in this. This is actually probably the the typical interpretation of Mm -hmm. this. But what I'm putting forth here is that we've got two angels and we have the eternal son, mm-hmm. Yahweh himself, appearing to Abraham and begins a conversation with him and has a meal with him. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one, one kind of thing that you may have heard and maybe where you thought this was going because you're talking about three people is mm-hmm. this idea that this is the Trinity. Sure, yeah. And there's a very famous icon painting by Andrei Rublev, who's probably the most famous iconographer of, of all time. And he has a painting called The Hospitality of Abraham uh, where these three men are depicted as the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Um, East, that's Eastern Orthodoxy. But they, their theology would actually say that this is a, a, a pointer to the Trinity, mm-hmm. a type of the Trinity. But they do not believe that this is the Trinity. Because okay. right? they yeah. can read too. So they yeah. can see that they're actually two of them are angels. Yeah. It's just like right there <laughs> in like the next couple sentences, right? So it's not the Trinity, but I think that it is Christ. It is the eternal son. And then the other two men, the angels, uh, and he actually ends up sending the angels to Sodom, mm-hmm. right? So, so the angels go to do his bidding. And then what we'll, what we'll read is he comes back, yeah, mm. has a conversation with Abraham. So I want to make sure that 
I want to make sure that's clear, Jackie. Does that make sense? I think it's clear. Yeah. It's a difficult topic to understand Mm -hmm. because when we think of Jesus, we think of him as incarnate New Mm -hmm. Testament Jesus. So to think about our concept of before, it, it, it gets a little tricky, huh? Yeah. Um, one, one way to, to just think about this a little bit differently is the way that we think about monotheism. Mm-hmm. So monotheism means one God. Mm-hmm. And the Bible, the Old Testament, is, is monotheistic, meaning that there's only one God, but it's monotheistic in a very specific way. Mm-hmm. It means there's one true God. Mm-hmm. There's one God worthy of worship. There's mm-hmm. one creator. There's one sustainer, and that's Yahweh. But there's all kinds of other spiritual beings. Mm-hmm. And these spiritual beings exist and operate in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even rebellious spiritual beings that exist and operate and accept worship from people mm-hmm. who should be worshiping the true God, yeah. right? Um, and so that is technically biblical monotheism. Mm-hmm. It's not that all other gods are fake. Not that there's no <laughs> other spiritual realm or spiritual beings. Right. The Bible makes it clear that there are. And I say gods as in lowercase g. Yeah which is the best interpretation of Elohim, Mm -hmm. which is the Hebrew word that speaks of other divine beings, right? So it's not that the quote unquote gods are fake. It's that you shouldn't worship them because they were created by Yahweh. Yeah. (laughs) Why would you worship something created? Right. It's like when we talk about modern day idols, right? Like worshiping money. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that's nothing. Yeah. That's just a creation. It doesn't mean, it doesn't actually mean anything, right? So to worship it is is silly. Mm-hmm. To worship uh, a being who is divine and different than you, but was created by Yahweh is silly when you can just worship Yahweh. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so uh, they were monotheistic in that way, but they were not necessarily like Unitarians, mm. meaning that God only exists in one person, one hypostasis. And so there's a book. It's actually a wild, mind-blowing book by, uh, I believe he's he's a secular Jew named Alan Siegel Hmm. called Two Powers in Heaven. And this book unpacks the biblical evidence for at least what I would call binitarianism. Okay. So two powers, two hypostases of God. So one God, but two hypostases? Two two forms, Mm -hmm. like two ways of appearing, right? Two, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, two two hypostases. And this encounter with Abraham and then the angel of the Lord sequences that we see Mm are basically what he goes on to say, this is what they believed in in the Old Testament. Sure. And again, it makes sense um, when we talk about Yahweh saying to Moses, no one can see my face and live. Right. And then appearing to people. Someone's giving him instruction. Someone's speaking to him. Yeah. He saw God face to face, mm-hmm. but you can't live. So what does mm-hmm. that mean? Well, there's this idea of hypostasis, yeah. right? We as Trinitarians cannot come to the throne of the Father except in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. So we believe the same thing, right? Yeah. That, that in our unholiness, we can't stand before the Father's judgment mm-hmm. except in Christ. And yet, yeah. And by the power of the Spirit, yeah. right? So it's, it's somewhat similar, but it is important to understand that like Christianity came to this Trinitarian uh, doctrine and understanding of God within the, within the already existing context of yeah. what the Bible how the Bible speaks about God's hypostasis. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, and so it really wasn't until, um, you know, rabbinical Judaism in, in the, the second or third century as a response to Christianity that the idea of multiple hypostases of God became a heresy. In, in Judaism. For Judaism. So they, they changed kind of their, 
that's, their views it, on I mean, that, or it seems like it. That's what Alan Siegel argues. And I think that's pretty clear what the Bible, you know, with the Old Testament, the way that it speaks about it. Right? Yeah, for us, I mean, we're in Genesis 18 and it already seems clear, right? Right. So hmm. so what Alan Siegel says and and what I believe is that first century Jews believed that God existed in, in at least one other hypostasis. Mm-hmm. Sure. The reason that's important is because that means that the idea that Jesus Christ is the hypostasis of of God is not actually outside the realms of what Jews have always believed. Sure. I mean, people accept it while he's on earth to some degree, right? There's exactly. followers who say, I, I believe that that's true. Um, and so uh, one of them, you know, one of the hypostases of God in Christian theology, I believe is is here mm-hmm. in this story, mm-hmm. speaking to, to, to Abraham. And so this is our, our first encounter um, and, and we'll see it in the language as we move forward. So, so I know that's a lot. So, so here's, here's the takeaway. There's three beings who approach Abraham who are in the form of a human being. Mm-hmm. And he immediately considers this an encounter with Yahweh. And as you will see in the dialogue and plot that ensues, two of these men are angels and one is Yahweh himself. Mm-hmm. And so this hypostasis of God in human form is not an isolated incident. And we'll encounter it again as the story goes forward. And what I believe theologically is that these encounters are pointers. Mm-hmm. They're types. They're foreshadowings of what we will see fully revealed in Christ and the Holy Spirit. Chad Bird calls these dress rehearsals. Dress rehearsals. Yeah, that's really good. Isn't that interesting? That is. So one God, three persons, three hypostases. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the classic mm-hmm. Christian doctrine, right? And, it's not, and what I'm arguing here is it's not brand new theology. Christ as God incarnate to some degree, at least as a pointer, um, is very commensurate with the Old Testament. Yeah, that's why we love talking about it. And that's yep. why when you get to the New Testament, it won't come as a surprise when we see Christ. Yeah, so th- so then, you know, the only thing I'll leave before before we go, go on here is that, you know, classic Christian theology and the church fathers in the New Testament, they're gonna espouse in no uncertain terms mm-hmm. that this is Christ. Mm-hmm. prior to the actual incarnation that Abraham encounters yep. here. Yeah. So this is a Christophany, mm-hmm. which is which is pretty cool. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's do, uh, let's do nine through 15. Where's your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself Mm -hmm. as she thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> Sarah was afraid, so she lied to God and said, oh, I didn't laugh. <laughs> right. And God said, I, yeah, you did. I, I actually think um, it might actually technically be no, but you did laugh. <laughs> so it says here, yes, you did laugh. But I think like the Hebrew is like, no, but you did laugh. No, but you did. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, we're going to get it. The, the, the promise from last chapter is repeated here. Mm-hmm. Right. While Abraham and Sarah are well past the age of childbearing, he's at least 99. Mm-hmm. She's never been able to have children. Now she's all, obviously probably that old. She was 90 when Abraham was 99. So there you go. yeah. There you go. So she's 90 and they're going to have a son just like God has promised 
all along. So there's a couple mm-hmm. weird things in here. Um, when you when you see the words this time next year and at the appointed time next year, those that's not really what it says in Hebrew. Okay. It ha- it's a word that that means life. Interesting. So, or living thing. And so one of the ways that some of the older translations will translate this is at the time of life. Okay. Or at the time of revival. Because hmm. like to vivify is to give life. Sure. Right? So to revive. Revive. So, I mean, it, it, this is complicated. I was working with our intern Alexander on what this might mean. Okay. And it's hard to say like exactly what it means, but I think it perhaps it's talking about springtime. Oh, interesting. That right? that kind of seems to symbolize the time of life. Revival. Yeah. This is a, a, a agricultural community. Okay. And so, you know, the harvest and all that stuff is very, very important. And so, you know, in the winter, everything dies. Yeah. I mean, that is the way that, that ancient cultures viewed the world. There, there were ceremonies and in, in, there were Celtic ceremonies when the Christians went and evangelized the Celts where at, at, they knew the day of the, the, uh, the, the winter equinox. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? The, the, yeah, the shortest where it's day like of the, the year? Yeah, the shortest day of the year in the middle of winter. Yeah. yeah, so they knew when that was. And on that day, they would have this giant festival where they'd sacrifice to their gods because they, in their minds, it's like, what if it doesn't? What if it never gets better? What if oh, it keeps going, yeah. getting shorter? So on the shortest day of the year, they have this huge ceremony, this huge moment of sacrifice and all this stuff so that the next day you start to see mm. the days get longer. Mm-hmm. And that leads into spring where that's everything comes back to life. And so I think perhaps that's what at the appointed time with that Hebrew word that means life is, is maybe talking about. So mm-hmm. next spring, you're going to I like that interpretation. That's right. interesting. Um, but but again, you know, hold that loosely. And I, it's hard to say. <laughs> it's, it's a very strange uh, yeah. phrase. Right? All we know is he says, I'll come back at some time <laughs> and right. you'll have a son. And so Sarah laughs mm-hmm. like Abraham laughed last chapter. Because it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> How could this be? Yeah. And she says, you know, she's old and worn out. I'm going to have a baby now. I never had a baby when I was young. Mm-hmm. Right. And the Yahweh says to Abraham, why did she laugh? Yeah. Sarah says, I didn't laugh. And he says, no, but you did laugh. Yeah. And so again, we talked about this last week. Uh, God's not scolding Sarah. Just like he didn't scold Abraham. Right. He just says... I know it seems absurd to you, right. but it's happening. Uh, I mean, honestly, he's probably saying, of course you laughed. Yeah. Right? When when the angel of the Lord appears to Mary and says that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, what does she say? How? I'm not, <laughs> I'm a virgin. How? I've never been with a man. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so she's also not rebuked or condemned for a lack of faith. Faith is hard sometimes and God is purposely shocking. Yeah. And unpredictable. And we've even said that this doesn't necessarily indicate, I mean, they don't understand, but they still go ahead and do. Sure. They still have faith. They do. Like Mary says, I don't get how that could possibly happen, but let me trust you. Same with Abraham and same with Sarah. And so the promise is clear. And here is Yahweh himself once again, explicitly Mm -hmm. making the promise to Abraham and this time to Sarah as well. Yeah. So let's do 16 through 22. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. 
Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Hmm. So uh, we're going to talk about this when we get to the next paragraph or the, the next few verses, but I want you to remember uh, when he says he's chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's mm-hmm. the obligation that Abraham and his, his descendants have mm-hmm. to the promise. But basically here, the three men who we said are two angels in Yahweh start to walk towards Sodom and Yahweh decides to invite Abraham into the discussion and into the judgment that is about to be cast upon Sodom. Yeah, that's fascinating. And this is significant Mm -hmm. because he doesn't have to do this. He's God, Mm. right? But he's chosen to do this. And why? Mm. Well, Abraham's a mission carrier, right? So God chose him and has chosen to bless the world through him. He's intimately a part of the mission of God and God's about to act. And so he invites his friend, Abraham, into the discussion, not because he has to, but because he wants to. Mm. Remember when God created human beings, there was that verse where he said, let us create. Well, he's speaking to a council of divine beings that he has created, that he sits in a council room with them and allows them to participate Mm -hmm. in the decisions that he's gonna make. This is the kind of God that he is. This is the kind of world. He's giving us participation. Yeah, he's exactly. It's all about participation. Right. And so here's Abraham, his his righteous mission carrier. And so in a real way, Abraham has been invited into the divine council mm-hmm. as God's about to make a decision. And so um, what we're going to see is that Abraham starts to discuss this with God and mm-hmm. he starts to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And it's actually in a very reverent way, but he, he even challenges a little bit and becomes involved in the process of judgment and discernment and decision-making. Yeah. Remember that that we we believe that humans would eventually be given access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, we talked about how that was how wisdom worked. And they'd start to become wise. Yeah. And the reason that they that that they need to start to become wise is because God wants them to participate with him mm-hmm. in ruling and discerning and judging in the world. That was their mandate. So Abraham is the vessel of new creation. Mm -hmm. But new creation is a restoration of what was always supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so Abraham is now being brought into the council, into the chambers to to participate Mm -hmm. in this process of judgment. This matters for us because at this moment of redemptive history, we're the church. Mm -hmm. And so God has chosen us as his mission carriers. And so this story should tell us something. Mm -hmm. It should tell us and show us that God wants us to engage with him. One of the reasons that prayer is so significant in the new covenant church is because in prayer, we are invited in Christ through the spirit to approach the father's throne of grace and participate yep. in the recreation of the world. Yeah. And so that is technically what you're doing when you pray. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying that, that asking God for things is bad, but that is certainly not the extent of, of a life of prayer. Mm-hmm. It is to enter into the divine counsel with God mm-hmm. in the power of, of Christ and the spirit and to participate in his judgment and decisions and discernment mm. of, of the world. And so the, the idea is not brand new. God has always chosen to bring his mission carriers into intimate discussion and relationship. And he's going to do the same thing with Moses, right? Yeah. That's what Moses does Absolutely. with him. 
And here it is at the very beginning of the Bible with Abraham. Mm -hmm. And so I, I believe that today as the church, it's been broadened so that all of us who are in Christ and in the spirit can also participate mm -hmm. in, in that way, which is pretty cool. It's really cool. And so the angels go and Yahweh stays with Abraham. Mm -hmm. And so how does Abraham then engage with Yahweh? Yeah. We'll read 23 through 33. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous people is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. Wow, right? That's crazy. So he negotiates with God. Yeah. God invites him into the discussion and he starts this, this negotiation. So, mm. you know, the first thing to notice is that it says that the, it said in, in the reading that we did before that the, the wickedness of Sodom is crying out. Yeah. And so uh, what that means is that the blood of their violence is crying out from the ground. Just like with Cain and Abel, when Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground. His blood from the yeah. ground cries out to God. And that led to the flood, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It led to that judgment. Mm -hmm. I mean, the that plus the increasing wickedness and violence. Yeah. And so it is the blood that, that cries out from the ground. So part of the flood story is that it's a cleansing, mm -hmm. right? Um, in the Exodus story, God's gonna hear the cries of his people. But what? But what's happening to his people? Mm. Their innocent babies are being killed yeah. and thrown into the Nile River. And so when God judges Egypt with plagues, one of the plagues is that the Nile River turns to blood. Yeah. Whose blood is that? Mm. This is the the blood of the innocent mm -hmm. being being redeemed and and justice being brought forward. And so God's going to judge Sodom for that wickedness here. And Abraham starts negotiating God's judgment. And so what's Abraham's criteria for God's judgment? He says, "What if there's righteous people in the city?" Yeah. Would you would you destroy them along with the wicked? Because that doesn't really seem right. Yeah, that's so bold. It doesn't seem just. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be in your character. Mm. And so while the Hebrew phrasing of Abraham's questions are very polite and reverent, right? I mean, he he says, ah, but I'm just dust and ashes, but allow me to speak yeah, just Yeah, I like more. how he says that after. He's like, now that I've been so bold to right. speak, let me speak once more. I'm nothing, but let right. me speak once more. And I think this kind of shows that Abraham's like not completely comfortable with this discussion. Yeah. He's not speaking to God like he would speak to one of his buddies, uh -huh. right? But it does raise the question, is it okay for Abraham to do this? Yeah. I mean, yeah, he's been invited into the discussion, but is it okay for him to question God and to negotiate mm -hmm. with God mm -hmm. and to, 
to kind of put his will forward uh, to see if it's commensurate with God. And so in verses 18 and 19, which we read in the last section, it says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Mm. So Abraham is the mission carrier of God and God has chosen him and invited him into God's redemptive mission to bless and restore the world. And so how is Abraham supposed to do that? Yeah, He's going to follow God and he's going to do what's right and just. Then God says he's going to destroy Sodom for their wickedness. And what does Abraham argue for? Yeah, he wants God to do what's right and just. Exactly. In his mind, he says, would you spare the righteous? Wouldn't that be right and just? Yeah, like what if, I mean, what if most of the people in Sodom are righteous? Would you still bring this judgment upon them? Yeah. What if there's a big group of people that are righteous? Like, what, would you still bring this judgment upon them? And so I think that what this shows is that Abraham is engaging with God exactly as he's supposed to. Hmm. God's invited him to do this very thing, to practice righteousness and justice even in the conversation with mm-hmm. God Almighty. And so that's exactly what Abraham's doing here. Um, I would argue that Abraham knows the wickedness of Sodom. Yeah. Right? So remember, he had an encounter with Melchizedek. Yeah. After he saved Sodom and uh, from, from Keterleomer. Mm-hmm. And then Abraham has, right after that, has an encounter with the king of Sodom. Mm-hmm. And so Sodom had a chance to repent. Yeah. Like sure. they always do. Right? They could have hitched their wagons to Abraham. Right. They could have started worshiping Yahweh. Um, and his cousin Lot, or his, uh, his nephew Lot lives over there. And so he yeah. knows, I think that he knows that this judgment is going to come upon mm. Sodom. Mm-hmm. The question that he has for God is, will you judge the righteous and the wicked the same? Mm. Right? Because that doesn't seem righteous and just. Right. So will you do that? And God's answer to that question is no. Mm. Now, Sodom ends up getting judged, which we're going to talk about in the next chapter. Yeah. Um, but seemingly because there were no righteous people there. Yeah. Um, Lot and some of his family escape. Yeah. But everything else gets turned to salt. Mm-hmm. And the narrative flow of this and this uh, negotiation with Abraham would tell you that that means that there, there were no righteous people there. Mm-hmm. It was a wicked city. It's interesting in the narrative too, it kind of, you know, what we ask when we see God destroy cities and stuff was, you know, we ask as modern day people, was that right? Mm -hmm. Destroy a city like that? Mm -hmm. Well, here's Abraham and God talking about that. Right. And it's tough because, you know, there are certainly things like natural disasters that Mm -hmm. have to do with the the fracture of creation Mm -hmm. that um, I would not necessarily categorized as the judgment of God, yeah. like we're going to see with Sodom. Right. And it gets complicated because sin multiplies and expands and pollutes and and uh, creation is, is broken because of that. Yeah. But certainly um, the question that we all have is, are you going to judge the wicked and the righteous the same? Mm-hmm. And Abraham is supposed to be the carrier of a covenant where he acts righteously and justly. Mm-hmm. And so he participates in that in this conversation with God. He goes right to that point. Yeah. And so I actually think that this is obedience, mm. that he's being obedient to God and he's discussing exactly what he should be discussing. And God's answer is no. Mm-hmm. No, I won't. I won't do that, right? Um, but not because Abraham told him not to, mm-hmm. but because Abraham is seeking righteousness and justice. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think that that God is is commending Abraham in that in that conversation. And mm-hmm. so um, next week we'll see how this goes for Sodom, and we'll see how it goes for Lot, who finds himself in Sodom once again. Can't seem to stay away from yeah. that place. Oh, Lot and uh, God uh, here in this chapter, God the Eternal Son Christ appears to Abraham and appears in human form, and that human form is going to happen again through the Old Testament, usually in the angel of the mm-hmm. Lord. And this type of manifestation or hypostasis will be fulfilled in Christ Mm -hmm. when the eternal son actually becomes flesh and blood and takes human nature upon himself Mm -hmm. in the person of Jesus Christ, which is the hypostatic union. And Genesis 18 already points to that that fulfillment and that reality. It's cool. And God invites Abraham into the divine council to practice righteousness and justice because Abraham is the Mm -hmm. mission carrier of God's redemption, which has a lot to do with righteousness and justice. Mm Mm-hmm. And as the church, we are now the mission carriers of God's reconciliation. And that's been enacted through Christ's birth and life, and death and resurrection and ascension and the sending of the spirit and the formation of the church. And so we too, through lives of prayer, are to participate in the divine council. Mm. We are to participate and practice righteousness and justice in our lives. And through that, bring forth the redemption of God. Yeah. The world, right? So you see how all this stuff starts to, to connect. It's really right? cool. Pretty cool. So um, I know that the hypostasis of God here is confusing. So yeah. obviously if anybody has questions, like feel free to reach out and, and ask. I'd be happy to clarify something. Um, but, I, you know, this is a very, very significant story in terms of what mm-hmm. happens in, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the redemption of the world. Yeah. And this is one of the first foreshadowings of that. One of yeah. the first dress rehearsals for that. Yeah. Shout out to, to Chad Burke. Um, and so, yeah, so that's all I got for today. You got anything else, Jackie? That's it. All good. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys for joining us this week, and we'll see you next week on Story Symbol Spirit. Mm-hmm.